Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never answer him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, I just uh, I thank you for this text. I thank you for this story that, uh, that we have that shows us just, I don't know, so much. So much that we get to kind of explore uh, right now. So God, I pray that you would help me um, to lead all of us in exploring understanding this text, that we will understand um, how you interact with um, skeptics or the doubtful or those who are struggling with these types of things. Uh, I pray that I might decrease, that you might increase, Lord, all glory to you through this time, um, now and leading forward. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Okay. So this story is, this is a phenomenal story. This is a phenomenal story. If you guys were uh, maybe missing the, the, the reading earlier, this is a, a pretty well-known story, one of Jesus' miracles, where we have a man with a, with a son who has an unclean spirit, basically a demon. He has a demon-possessed son. And he brings, brings his son to, to, to Jesus' disciples, and the disciples are unable to, to cast the demon out. And so... Uh, the man, probably very disappointed, very disheartened, um, eventually brings his son to Jesus, and Jesus casts the spirit out, and it's this moment of like, man, like, look at Jesus, like, really doing the thing. Like, that's so, so great. It's such an encouraging, uplifting thing to see Jesus meeting one of us, like, like one of us just everyday people, and meeting us in our, in our, our time of need, our time of, our time of brokenness. And so we, we see doubt in a lot of different areas in this story. We see it from a lot of different perspectives and from a lot of different groups of people here. But I really want to focus specifically on the father. Um, we, we could go for, for hours about all of the details and the intricacies of this story. But I really want to focus on the father specifically. And, uh, and, and my point like kind of like my thesis statement for the whole, for the whole message today is, is really to encourage any of us who may be experiencing just the vast array of, of doubts 
and, and skepticism that we may experience. And also in the theme and in the light of, of discipleship, which is, our, which is our theme for the series, is also to encourage those who are encouraging those who are doubting. So those of us who have friends and loved ones and family and just random people who may be experiencing this stuff as well. So we, so we know how to minister to ourselves, but we also know how to minister to others as well. And so that's kind of a main focus for our message today. I think that before I move forward and as I transition into uh, the first point I want to make, I kind of have to address the elephant in the room, or I guess the elephant in the, in the text, which is that we have Jesus meeting this man in this time of great brokenness, in this time of great despair, and he, he, he heals, right? Like he does the miracle, the, the good thing happens, and that's a wonderful story, but I almost want to meet this story with, with a different one. I want to tell you guys a quick story from my own personal experience, and then we're going to try and, you all know, fuse the two together, see how they both can coexist. So... Uh, my uncle Jason was probably one of the more interesting characters in my father's side of the family. Uh, my whole dad's side of the family grew up in Louisiana, uh, Lake Charles, if you're interested. Pretty, I don't want to say rural, but like just like small homes, just small areas, just kind of like, you know, not, not super great areas. But most of my dad's family ended up leaving Louisiana as they got into their careers and eventually were kind of able to break the cycle of poverty. But my uncle Jason, who was the oldest, he was never really interested in that, and he just kind of chose to stay in this like very like simple lifestyle where most of his life he just kind of lived in a very small house by himself, breeding pit bulls, pretty violent pit bulls. Um, and most of my life, I never met him or even spoke to him simply because despite the fact that technology continued to move forward, he refused to have a computer and he refused to own a cell phone. And so most of my life, I never met my Uncle Jason. Uh, he went to the doctor a couple of years ago, and they were doing screenings, and they found out that he had cancer in his liver. Um, they did additional screenings and eventually found out that the cancer was not only at stage four in his liver, but it had spread throughout his body, and he had cancer in pretty much every vital organ possible. Uh, things were not looking good for my Uncle Jason. And so my dad and I, we flew out to Louisiana so we could see him meet, to meet him for the first time, which was an interesting experience, meeting someone who was so clearly about to go to the other side. And kind of surreal, honestly, me and my dad were, uh, were in the, the hospital room one night, and one of my relatives was, was there, and she knew me being, you know, a Christian, faithful person. She said, John, I want to pray for Uncle Jason right now. I said, of, of course, I'd love to. So she's, she's praying for him, and, and she's, like, speaking from this, like, place of, like, authority. She's like, I'm casting this cancer out of you, Uncle Jason. In the name of Jesus, I'm casting this cancer out of you. And she takes his hand, and she looks in his eyes, and she says, I want you to say the cancer is gone. And he says, the cancer is gone. And she says, I want you to say the sickness is gone. And he says, the sickness is gone. And I prayed, um, admittedly a little bit of a different prayer, but I did pray after that. And after a couple of days, my dad and I went back to Tucson. And about a week later, my uncle passed away. And so 
I almost wonder if my story for us is almost a little bit more relatable than, than the story that we just read, right? Because Jesus' story is beautiful and it's wonderful and it's fantastic. It shows his, his power over all types of evil, unclean, undone, ungood things. It shows his compassion and his love for these people. But for me, I, my, my, my uncle didn't wake up with, you know, suddenly no cancer when he had tons of cancer. For many of us, maybe, maybe our sons have been possessed and stayed possessed. Maybe our grandparents woke up with dementia and died with dementia. Like, how do we reconcile that into this story? I feel like that's the big, awkward elephant that we have to address first. And so let's try. And so our first point that, that we're going to go into from that segue here is, uh, is the father's suffering. The father's suffering. One moment. Suffering is an interesting concept. It's very interesting. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. There, there's something about suffering in the wide like spectrum that it exists where we understand that it's really not supposed to be there. There's something that seems unjust about suffering, even if it's completely uh, just random, like not caused by somebody else. There's something intrinsically inside of us that knows that suffering really just shouldn't be there. And for a lot of us, or I won't say a lot of us, but maybe some of us, maybe one of us here tonight, I think it's, it's difficult when we suffer, when we struggle, when we go through difficult times, because there's a part of us that wants to believe that if the God that loves us doesn't want us to go through this suffering, and yet here we are suffering with all of our possessed children and uh, cancer-stricken uncles, like, then how do we see God as good? How do we reconcile those two? And that's even harder when we consider the fact that the world around us, the gospel that they preach, is also very anti-suffering. They don't find a, much of a place for it either. Shoot, I remember uh, being in high school, learning about how uh, like just philosophy had shifted after World War I. It's like the world didn't know what to do with themselves once they realized how destructive tear gas and, and mortar shells were when all these world powers are murdering and destroying all these millions of sons, the world didn't know what was good and what was bad. So how do we as Christians look at suffering? How do we reconcile that? I like this, uh, this passage in John, John chapter 16. Jesus is basically giving the disciples kind of like the worst uh, pep talk ever. He's like, all right, guys, here's what's going to happen. Um, you guys are going to get killed for pe from people who think that doing so is pleasing to God. Uh, and I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be out. Uh, and you're going to die. And you're going to have grief. But Jesus says that, but, but at one point soon, you'll see me again. And your grief will be turned to joy. You're going to have grief. It's not going to be great. It's not going to be fun, but it's not going to be forever. And you'll see me again, I promise. And when you see me again, your grief will be turned upside down. Turn that frown upside down, right? And that's what leads us to that, to that very like, uh, common verse. I think it's uh, verse 33 of that same chapter where it says, No, in this world, you will have trouble. Not you, you might have trouble. No, you will have trouble 
but take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus is, is, is priming us. He's preparing us. He's saying this, this suffering that we're all so, so, so timid about, don't, don't, don't plan for if it might happen. Expect it. Anticipate it. It's going to happen. It's there. But be ready for it and know that today you'll have grief. Today you will struggle. Today you, you may deal with these things. Today maybe your son is beautifully, miraculously healed. And guys, please don't take any of my points to say that we shouldn't pray for healings, that we shouldn't pray for miracles. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when we pray for our uncles and they die a week later, let's not look at God and say, where's this suffering coming from, dude? Like, I thought we were cool. Let's, let's remember Romans chapter 8 is just as interesting because it says, you know, you guys are, are sons of God and co-heirs with Christ in suffering. It, it creates this, this understanding of like, we're actually sharing in the suffering of Jesus. Jesus, our king, Jesus, our master who suffered throughout his life, we actually get the privilege to suffer in the same way. And so, it's not as if the suffering has the same kind of evil that it had before. Now, it's still present, but it has meaning, and it has purpose. Suffering can make us doubt. It can. Honestly, sometimes it just will. Sometimes I don't think you're processing the suffering correctly if there's not a little bit of doubt that comes out as a result. But... We can meditate on these truths, on these things, on these beautiful truths that we find in the scriptures, and we can hopefully, hopefully anchor ourselves in, in this understanding that Jesus is trying to give us. The next point I want to move into was the Father's disappointment. The Father's disappointment. And I, and I will admit, this is a little bit of conjecture. Like, it doesn't say this completely, but like, I think, I still feel pretty good talking about it. So, Again, the father went not to Jesus first, but he went to his disciples. He, he said that he, his son had been afflicted with this demon since he, was, since he was little, for a long time, maybe a few years. Maybe, maybe he was eight, got possessed when he was three. It's five years, five years. It's your, your, your son getting torn about by this awful evil spirit, and you're just... He's got nothing to do. And so you hear, you hear, hey, actually, if you come here, this guy says he's the Messiah, and his, his, his friends, they're, they're casting demons out left and right, dude. Go see them. And he goes, just all the hope, all the hope, and the disciples fail. Completely drop the ball. And if you look at the end of our passage, it's not because of some magical, like, level 12 demon, and these guys only had, like, level 9 spells or something. No, the reason they couldn't cast him out is because they weren't praying. Because they didn't pray. They dropped the ball. And so, and, and here's where the stretch comes in, so bear with me, bear with me. I, I wonder if, if some of us have kind of experienced similar things. Not from Peter or, uh, or Andrew or Matthew, any of the actual apostles, but I wonder if some of us have experienced doubt as a result of the failures of Jesus' disciples. Maybe 
It was just some dude you knew in high school who was a Christian who was also kind of a jerk. Maybe it was a church that you grew up in. Maybe it was like just the church cultural movement, you know? Like we could spend several sermons talking about um, a lot of the flaws of like the cultural Christianity that exists not just here in America, but pretty much everywhere. Those problems come with faults and those faults come with hammers that are being thrown around and hitting us and they cause damage. Maybe your damage comes from that. It makes sense. It makes sense that you would feel wounded by someone who was waving the banner of Christ and maybe look at God a little bit differently. Maybe think a little bit less of him. How do we approach that? Well, there's a couple of ways the one, that I, the one that I really like is, uh, is Paul in, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, the, the people in Corinth were, were dividing themselves unnecessarily. They were like, based on the, the, whatever dude had, had baptized them. And so you've got people who were like, uh, actually, I'm a follower of Paul. Oh, no, oh, well, I'm a follower of Apollos. Oh, well, you know, I've got the Cephas tattoo right here, so I'm a Cephas guy, what can I say? And, and Paul's like, Stop. Like, stop doing this. And Paul has this wonderful line in the second chapter where he says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you guys baptized in the name of Paul, you dummies? Like, that that part is, is John Simon annotation. But, like, I essentially imagine, like, Paul's just frustrated. Like, what are you guys doing? Stop, stop writing for these people who, who weren't the ones that saved you. Keep, your, keep the center of our faith in the center, and that's Jesus. And that's a difficult thing. It is. It's a difficult thing to look at somebody who's actually been really hurt and damaged by whatever affiliation with Jesus, and they just say, oh, actually, no, you should focus on Jesus. That's not an easy thing to do. It's not. You can't oversimplify that. But I do think that that's something that we maybe not just take as this very simple dose, like, oh, done. Oh, that's easy. That was no problem. But maybe something that we can anchor ourselves with, something that we can kind of struggle through. The third point in my semi-last point, semi, is uh, the Father's honesty. The Father's honesty. Man, if this story was a movie, like, it was all building up to this big climactic moment where this man's been so disappointed and his son is getting flailed around, like, hurting himself. And Jesus is just like, what do you believe, dude? Like, what's going on? And the father just like... I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, it's just like, it just comes out so, so just raw and so true and so honest, so honest. Like, I wonder if some of us, because I feel this way sometimes, I stop halfway. I say, I believe period. No, it's not true. 
Like we, we stop ourselves halfway. So there, there's something, and, and again, th- this may even lean back into the second point of having negative things kind of thrown at us that kind of uh, uh, misdirect and alter our understanding of God. But I think a lot of us are afraid to doubt because we think that doubting is sin. Or, or we're afraid to doubt because we're afraid that doubt is going to send us down this like downward spiral that leads to just destruction. Like if I doubt today, then I'll be a Satanist by Thursday. Like no, like I think a lot of us have these kinds of fears where we're, we're, we're struggling with this idea of doubting because we're afraid of, of how far that's going to take us down the tunnel. And I know I've been speaking about doubt in very general terms, but this doesn't have to be doubt of God's existence. This could be doubt of God's goodness. This could be doubt of God's love for, for, for you specifically or, or doubt of God's love for somebody that you don't necessarily want to love. This could be doubt for, for, for a multitude of things that we understand about God. And we should be able to try and confess that doubt openly. Turn with me to um, Psalm 22, please. Psalm 22. I, uh, I was listening to a, a podcast a couple weeks ago, and I, it, was, it was a dude interviewing a Jewish scholar. He was a Jewish scholar, and he was, he was very... Um, his, his main area of studies was the book of Psalms, which is why we're here. And, you know, he's, you know, traditionally, like, a, a, conser- a conservatively Jewish, and he mentioned that he's like, I find it so interesting that in modern times, when, when a Jew or, or, or even a Christian um, wrestles with something or, or discovers something about God that they kind of feel is weird and awkward and incompatible, something they're doubting or struggling to believe, that the tendency is just to throw it in the trash and say, well, I can't be a Christian or a Jew if I believe in this, so I'm out. And the tendency is just to not really want to dig into it, to just say, like, if, if this is, if what I'm feeling is incompatible with what the, the faith represents or says that it is, then I guess I'm not blank. And what's interesting is that when we look to the 22nd chapter of Psalms, like here, I won't even, I won't even speak for it. I'll let it speak for itself. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. This is David. Remember, David, the man after God's own heart. This is what he's saying. And this is not a, a poem that we found in his high school locker room. He wrote this, and this became a song that the Israelites would sing in congregations. How? <laughs> How is this this, uh, piece of literature, how is this poem that's just challenging and doubting God, something that's not just been preserved in the canon of Scripture, but something that's been sung and celebrated? Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Yet, 
You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So this actually isn't just this long list of grievances that David is bringing against God. Well, in a sense it is, but he, he, you can see he's battling it. He's like, you don't hear me. When I pray to you, you don't hear me. You don't, you, you're not there when I need you, but you've been there. You've been there for my fathers. You've been there for my countrymen. You've sustained us. You've protected us. I know this. But then look at verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let them deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And so he goes back, and now he's upset again. And now he's a worm, and now he's frustrated at God, and now he's, 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 gr- he's grieving again. He's grieving at God again. But then let's go back. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. And he goes back. There was another yet out there. He says, God, I, I'm so frustrated. You're, you're not, you don't listen to me. You don't answer me. You don't, you're not there when I need you. But you've been there for me before. And you've sustained my people. You've kept us strong. Ever since I was born, you, you, you put this trust in me that has me praying to you right now, that has me longing for you. But I'm still upset. Like it's this back and forth. And like I said, this, this was not just this random passage. This was something that was sung in the temple. This was a psalm. People would gather around and sing this. Have you ever thought of the idea that you could engage the doubts that you have against the God that we serve, and it would not only be acceptable, but that God would hear it as praise? That we could actually worship worship God by telling him where our doubts are, where our frustrations are, but then countering that with, but I know you're good. I don't feel it. I don't believe it all the time, but I, I know because you, you said so. Like, what, what, what a thing. Like, what, what an interesting concept. What, that's such a... Such a thing, such a thing that we should explore, that, we should, that should keep us from, from this, this, this timidity, this timidness that keeps us from wanting to express these kinds of doubts. And so as we reflect on these points, as we reflect on these points and, and, and start to close, some of us maybe uh, were experiencing some of these doubts when you guys came today. Maybe, maybe. And again, like, please don't let me generalize, right? Like the, the, the insight, the, the, the catalysts for doubt that I presented were very small. We're a very small measure of, of what doubt can actually look like sometimes. Because here's the thing, doubt is, doubt is messy and it's, it's complex and it's, it's, it's difficult because the lives that we live, heck, we're humans, we're made in the image of God. Our lives, our experiences, who we are is messy 
and complex and complicated and difficult. So, so don't let me think that, uh, don't, don't let me generalize and say this is what all doubt looks like. Doubt can look a billion different ways. And maybe some of the words that I'm sharing is, is beneficial. Maybe, maybe it's, it's just what you needed to hear and you can leave here and never doubt again. But I don't think that's probably the case. And I think that as we tie this into how we doubt ourselves, but also how we help those around us who we love who are also doubting, we should remember that as we experience this, the, the take two and call me in the morning approach to ministering to doubt is not always successful. If you're struggling with doubt and you listen to a sermon and you read a book and you read a passage and you uh, skim through Job or maybe audiobook through Job, it's kind of long, and, and you find that at the end of that, you're still in the same place, that doesn't mean your doubt is permanent, but it does mean then maybe this is something you have to wrestle with a while. Again, what we see from David in this psalm is not just a random, like, I know you're good, hallelujah. Like, he just, he has to wrestle with it. He has to really say, I know it's here. I know this doubt is right here, and I have to fight with it, and I have to grapple with it. And that's what we have to do. And also, please, 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 if there's someone you love who's doubting, if there's someone you love who's struggling with anything like this, don't, don't, don't give them the take two and call me in the morning treatment either. Bible verses are great. Books are great. Sermons are great. Articles are great. You can send them all that stuff. It's wonderful. But please, we're discipling the people around us. Walk with them through what they're experiencing. Give them an ear that they can express their frustrations and try to anchor them. Try to anchor them on the truth that's going to keep them grounded. It's not a, it's not a quick fix-all cure. It's not. I don't think there is one. But it's what they need, and it's what we need too. Just look to other people and just get that strength that we need. That's, that's the church. That's all it is. I've been thinking a lot about the cure for doubt. Seems like something they'd sell at a lousy store, I don't know. The cure for doubt. I think that I wanted to say it was trust. And trust is great. Trusting Jesus is not something I'm going to say is a bad thing. But trust is inconsistent because we're inconsistent. We're frail. We're not, we're not perfect. And I almost cringe saying this because it seems like the kind of Christian-y stuff that I try to lean away from. But honestly, I think the cure for doubt is Jesus. I think the cure for doubt is Jesus. Let me explain. When we, going back into this story, going back into what's happening here, we have the scribes who are like sitting around like, <laughs> Jesus, such a failure. <laughs> and then you've got the disciples who are just like, Oh, we tried. We kind of messed up there. And you got the father who's like, please, just someone help my son. And, and what is it that dispels the doubt? Jesus. He acts. And with a word, the doubts are silenced. Because you can't doubt something that's right in front of you. 
You can't doubt something that's right in front of you. And Jesus made it clear just who he was and what he was capable of with a word. And so what does that mean for us now? Is Jesus keeping that word from us? I don't think so. I think what we remember is that we find ourselves in the story of Jesus. We find ourselves in his overarching narrative. We find ourselves there as his disciples, as his disciples on this mission to disciple, to bless, to, to, to as far as the curse is found, to bring blessings, to bring God's blessings. That's our mission. That's our call. But the end of the story that Jesus calls us into is not born again and baptized. Not that that's bad. Again, none of these things are bad. That's not the end of our story because we're still in that awkward in-between. The end of our story is the promise that Jesus made to his disciples, the promise that we read a few minutes ago. You will have grief, but you're going to see me again, and your grief will turn to joy. We can believe that Jesus in his return, or in the life to come for us, we will see our grief, all of it, our suffering, our doubt, our disappointment, turn to joy as we see his face. And I think that it's appropriate, I think it's always appropriate, but I think it's very appropriate that we would end um, this sermon on the point of Jesus. Because as we look at the points that we went through, we see Jesus in all of them. We talk about suffering. Jesus was the suffering servant. Jesus' earthly existence was marked by suffering. Jesus endured so much in his life, so much difficulty, so much trial. And then at the end of his life, he allowed himself to be broken, his body broken, just as our bread is broken, and his blood to be poured out, just as our wine is poured out. And he endured all of that suffering. We talk about disappointment. We talk about disappointment of Jesus' disciples. Well, at, at the moment that Jesus needed his disciples most, they, they were out the door. Jesus knows a thing or two about disappointment. And it's so beautiful that we read from the chap that we read from Psalm 22 because it maybe it maybe it kind of perked your ears a little bit but that first verse was literally what Jesus cried out to our father on the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me and so we find in all of these places that tend to, 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 to plant doubt in us we see that Jesus is experiencing and is and is familiar with all of them and he relates and he empathizes, and we can lean on him for that. But not just that, but that in suffering, in his disappointment, in his abandonment, in his crying out to God, what he was doing was not just creating a prototype that we would follow, not just creating something where he could say, oh, hey, John's going through that, I went through that too. But he was literally creating a plan, a way to save us to save our souls from the sins that want to bury us and to promise us, just as he said again, that you will have grief, 
but your grief will turn into joy when you see me again.